together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we warned you. Let's talk about your reviews uh, a little bit regarding Intravenous de Milo. This tasteless cover is a good indication of the lack of musical invention within. The musical growth rate of this band cannot even be charted. They are treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Well, that's, that's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> Last week, we went deep into Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker's third motion picture, 1986's Ruthless People, and this week we're dialing back the clock a bit to chronicle another film that, like Airplane, came to define an entire subgenre, 1984's This is Spinal Tap. It's a story that involves zucchini codpieces, big bottoms, tiny stonehenges, amps that go to 11, and numerous cold sores. On with the show! A fine line between stupid and clever. This is Spinal Tap. The faux documentary, or mockumentary, charts back to the 1930s, when Orson Welles's Mercury Theater disguised their radio adaptation of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds as a news broadcast, which scared the living shit out of gaggles of God-fearing Americans. As time marched on and access to archive footage became feasible, the mockumentary began to be applied in a comedic manner and evolved as a visual medium as well, with TV specials like Eric Idle's The Ruddles and films like Woody Allen's and Albert Brooks's directorial debuts Take the Money and Run and Real Life respectively, the latter of which we'll be discussing in the weeks to come. But in terms of pitch-perfect craft and sheer denseness of hilarity, the high watermark for the subgenre arrived in 1984 with This is Spinal Tap. Through two decades, 17 classic albums, countless unforgettable concert triumphs, they changed the face of British rock music forever. And the best part is, they're back. Spinal Tap, get out there, you're on! Now, they're on the verge of the greatest comeback of all time. Heavy metal's deep. You can get stuff out of it. My name is Marty DeBerge. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point even. You don't even point. point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I can I look at it? One man 
dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like, is the world really ready for spinal tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a, leash and a leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, don't find that sexist? Yes, well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. From the place where eardrums go to die come the living legends of rock and roll lunacy. This is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap sprung from the minds of four men. Director Rob Reiner, then previously best known as Meathead on All in the Family, and three soon-to-be legendary writer-performers Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, and Harry Shearer. Guest and McKean had known each other since their teens when they wrote songs together and came together with Shearer and director Reiner in 1979 for a sketch show pilot called The TV Show. In one sketch in particular, the trio portrayed a clueless British rock band called Spinal Tap and improvised their way through the scene. In riffing off of each other, they created characters like lead guitarist Nigel Tufnell, a real Eddie Van Halen type, lead singer David St. Hubbins in the mold of Robert Plant, and bassist Derek Smalls, the group's John Entwistle, played by Guest, McKean, and Shearer, respectively. Three years later, in 1982, Reiner, Guest, Shearer, and McKean felt that the characters they created that day could be further fleshed out in a feature film. Reiner acquired $60,000 from a shingle called Marble Arch Productions and started writing a screenplay with his three stars, revolving around a Hollywood filmmaker named Martin DeBerge, played by Reiner, making a documentary of the band's first American tour, which goes increasingly poorly. Whether it's having shows canceled, hotel rooms given away, mounting pressures between bandmates, and playing concerts as second bill to puppet shows. But everyone involved quickly decided that they couldn't really write down what they wanted to do. They knew it had to hit all the highlights of a traditional band narrative, the high points, the low points, the arguments, the camaraderie, the breakups, the reunions. But beyond that, it would require the same sense of spontaneity that they channeled making the sketch. So they wrote a comprehensive outline and set about shooting some footage, taking the outline skeleton and improvising dialogue. Like Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker and the Kentucky Fried Movie, they used this proof-of-concept footage to sell potential backers and received partially no interest until Reiner's former All in the Family boss, Norman Lear, put up the budget necessary for a feature-length film. It's important to note that when I say improvise, I don't mean it in the way that improvise typically means today the Apatowian structure. These days, improv is like a game of pop-a-shot basketball at an arcade. Just saying something in the moment, trying to outdo your scene partner or make them crack up on camera, which admittedly is definitely there at times in This Is Spinal Tap. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> Where'd they print that? That's not real, is it? You can't print that. But a scene like These Amps Go to Eleven is technically improvised because there are no lines written down, but the concept on which the scene would hang was already hashed out. After all, you can't improvise a prop to be built to eleven. That's something that you have to construct and dress deliberately and then find a way to organically work into a scene. This kind of improvisation means conjuring up ideas and plot developments ahead of time 
and embellishing characters off the cuff in real time. It's more like the way that Mike Lee will spend a couple of weeks before shooting his films where he builds all the dialogue through ad-lib rehearsals and interpersonal interactions with his cast. You heard it here first. Rob Reiner is the Mike Lee of fake documentaries. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Interestingly, by playing musicians, improv becomes like another instrument, taking these different tones and harmonies and trying to make some kind of comedic symphony out of them, each person matching and informing the other, taking the energy from a scene partner and reflecting it back or bringing it higher. It's also intricately observed and brilliantly realized that it feels like verisimilitude. It requires the absolute right people in all creative positions and someone willing to take a risk on them. Because if you shoot without a strict screenplay and you're finding moments on a case-by-case -case basis, what if it isn't funny? You're fucked. And speaking of the music, it functions in two ways. As a clever satirization of late 70s, early 80s rock access, and as genuinely enjoyable, groovy tracks like Hellhole and Big Bottom. The situation Spinal Tap constantly find themselves in, whether it's getting lost backstage in Cleveland or suffering mishaps like getting trapped on stage in a giant plastic cocoon, are universal in their frustration, to the point that many musicians have felt the film or scenes in it were lifted from their own lives, which all involved have since denied, saying that the film was based on no one person or band in particular. That's not necessarily untrue, because it was based on no one person or band, rather an amalgam of all things both debunked and legendary about rock stars. The giant skull hung above the stage during concerts is based on Eddie, the mascot of Judas Priest. The scene of outrageous writer demands where performing bands request specific foods and backstage amenities was based on Van Halen, who notoriously required dishes of M&Ms with no brown ones. The getting lost backstage bit comes from a video of Tom Petty walking toward a stage in Germany and ending up in a tennis court. Rock and roll! It takes these very specific things and infuses them with touches of absurdism, most notably the mortality rate of the band's many drummers, all of whom made a particularly grisly demise from gardening accidents to spontaneous combustion and choking on vomit. Not their own vomit, someone else's. Through these ridiculous touches, you get moments of comedy gold where Reiner's DeBergi character interviews the most recent drummer in a bathtub to get his thoughts on whether or not he'll make it out of the tour alive, with possibly my favorite line of dialogue in the entire film, The Law of Averages Suggests You'll Survive. Or the scene where the band attempts to harmonize Heartbreak Hotel at Elvis's gravesite, only to disagree on how to properly proceed, which is both a great non-sequitur and something that informs the characters what and what they're going through at that point in the narrative, unable to function as a cohesive unit as the group begins to splinter and break apart. It takes an innate capacity for comedic rhythm to pull all this stuff off, and countless hours of editors essentially signing for fish, trying to pair the required plot structure bits with jokes and moments that will send the audience into hysterics, distilling 50 to 100 hours of material, depending on who you ask, into 82 minutes, a process that took two years. 
It's amazing that this is Rob Reiner's directorial debut, that he could create something so audacious, practically perfect, and fully formed in his first at-bat. It's such a confident film, both in concept and execution, and the more you understand about exactly what it's satirizing, the better it works. For instance, whenever Martin DeBerge has a one-on-one -on -one with the bandmates, occasionally they'll cut to an insert shot of the director nodding solemnly or expressing concern. Now that doesn't sound like a joke until you know how news magazine shows conduct interviews, where they shoot an entire conversation with a celebrity or some shit, talking about what kind of tree they would be, which I guess makes this hypothetical a Barbara Walters joint, then after the conversation is conducted, they record inserts of the interviewer reacting to whatever the subject said. It's a joke upon a joke. The words spoken in the scene are already funny, but then cutting to a random insert in the middle of all this, it makes it funnier. And if you never pick up on it or just don't care, there are two other things in any given scene to win your esteem. It's like the record release party scene, which for some reason is staffed by mime waiters, only to be made funnier by gigantic cold sores on the mouths of everyone in the band, which are never mentioned by anyone in the scene. A joke upon a joke. Reiner famously fought to include every one of the film's actors as writers, considering the group effort, but the Writers Guild quickly put the kibosh on this act of generosity and only awarded credit to the director and his three stars. Speaking of those other individuals, you have the recently departed National Lampoon veteran Tony Hendra as Ian Faith, Spinal Tap's manager, and Hendra completely nailed the performative windbag who always claims credit for success and blames his more glaring failures on anyone he possibly can. Even when he commissions the construction of an 18-inch Stonehenge replica because it was sketched on a bar napkin and the artist didn't know that two apostrophes indicated inches and not feet, he takes no responsibility for anything. It's always, well, he thought it was feet, and it's not my fault because I merely facilitate your mistakes. You have June Chadwick as St. Hubbins' girlfriend and Ian's replacement, a character inserted into the film to calm distributor Avco Embassy after they were concerned that the film was too plotless without her. You have the dearly departed Bruno Kirby as a boisterous limo driver who desperately tries to insert himself into conversations. You have David Letterman's sidekick Paul Schaefer as one of the worst performers in music history, Artie Fufkin. Billy Crystal and Dana Carvey as the aforementioned mime waiters at a record release party, the former of which who's responsible for the line, Mime is money. Fran Drescher as record label liaison Bobby Fleckman, who is so good in her part that I had built her up in my mind as a practical co-star, but only appears in maybe two scenes that ended up in the final cut. Angelica Houston as the designer of the miniature Stonehenge, whom I didn't even realize was in the movie until yesterday, and again, I've seen this ten times before. The late great Paul Benedict, later a Christopher Guest regular, in two scenes as a hotel concierge, wearing Coke bottle glasses, yet again winning by just showing up. And speaking of future Christopher Guest regulars, even Fred Willard shows up for a hot minute, then disappears just as quickly. When it came time to promote the film, Reiner and his stars decided to approach the entire marketing campaign in the same fashion of the film. Just close enough to reality to be perceived as something to take seriously, but refracted through a satirical prism. For the theatrical trailer, Reiner played himself in what he introduces as the editing suite for the film, where he regrets to inform the audience 
that he's still cutting the picture so he doesn't have something from the actual movie to show them. Instead, choosing to play a clip of a supposed cheese rolling festival in 1960s Denmark because he has to play something. It's such an audacious way to promote your film. One that marries the best of Alfred Hitchcock's teasers where he would walk you through a principal location with the likes of Albert Brooks's trailer for real life, which he insists is being screened in 3D, and the audience can retrieve their non-existent glasses supposedly placed beneath their seats, which again, we'll return to in a couple weeks. Now, you understand, my film is nothing like this. My film is a comedy. It's about rock and roll. There's no cheese. Well, you'll see for yourself. What do you think? Maybe I shouldn't have shown him the cheese thing. Don't worry about it. You can always cut the cheese. Right. When it came time to actually promote the film on television, the producers created a shot-on-video fake advertisement not too dissimilar from KTEL's compilation records with all the hit songs you'd expect from a band that does not actually exist whose movie you haven't seen yet. From 1965 to 1983 Rock and Roll has been here to stay and no one has done more staying than international recording stars Spinal Tap. Now, for the first time, Metal House presents this special TV collection, Heavy Metal Memories, a treasury of 18 years of nerve-damaging music by one of England's loudest bands. Perhaps unsurprisingly, This Is Spinal Tap wasn't a ginormous blockbuster. It grossed $4 million on a budget of two, technically placing the film in the black, but over time, the right audience found it. Many musicians, from U2 guitarist The Edge to Dave Grohl to Lars Ulrich of Metallica, felt it hit too close to home, but adopted it into their lexicon nonetheless, with the name eventually becoming synonymous with a nightmare experience or a surreal grind of a tour, coping with the realities of life on the road, minus superstardom in a different country. To promote the film, McKean hosted Saturday Night Live, where both Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer were castmates during the Dick Abersall season of 1984, and Spinal Tap got to perform as the episode's live act. They even toured as a group, and one of my great regrets is deciding not to go to one of their shows after my dad got the two of us tickets, and appeared in season three of Shearer's longest-running gig, The Simpsons. The cult audience began to grow with the film's home video release, scoring a Criterion Collection Laserdisc in 1994. Later, MGM released a DVD designed around keeping up the illusion of verisimilitude, presenting almost an hour of deleted scenes, all the marketing material, and unlike the Criterion release, a commentary with guest McKean and Shearer in character as Nigel Tufnell, David St. Hubbins, and Derek Smalls. In it, they grouse about the supposed hatchet job inflicted upon them by an unscrupulous filmmaker, pointing out individuals in each scene who they believe had passed away, something that they can never agree on, and even defending the infamous amps that go to 11. Yeah, this has been... We, should have, we should have patented yeah. this. Yeah. We should have, because I mean, everyone, everyone stole this. Everyone's everyone stole yeah. this. Jeez. We would have been... I wish that they would all just pay us, you know, a little bit. Just tribute. Yeah, it's tribute. Just if we had two and six for every time we got fucked over, yeah. we'd have four and twelve. Yeah. It's such a good commentary that I would totally do it as an episode of One Track Mind, even though it contains not a single solitary fact. Maybe as an April Fool's Day episode? Hmm, we'll see. Although This Is Spinal Tap is not the inaugural mockumentary, playing in a sandbox that had already been built or at least designed, 
It's clearly the spark that lit the subgenre's fuse. From Fear of a Black Hat to Drop Dead Gorgeous to Reno 911, the legacy of Spinal Tap runs deep in contemporary comedy. We'll outline exactly how deep next time as we march further in time to cover This Is Spinal Tap star Christopher Guest's other contributions to the mockumentary, 1996's Waiting for Guffman, 2000's Best in Show, and 2003's A Mighty Wind. Stay tuned. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. As a youth, I used to be all about how close movies got to quote-unquote reality, and dismissed what I perceived as cheesy. Now, I'm all about the concept of movies for movies' sake. These artificial worlds divorced from the natural order. Back in the 1940s, special effects actually used to be hard to produce, which is why they were so rare, and, if you did them well, you deserved to be recognized. Look at Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen, two stop-motion special effects titans whose names have dwarfed those of the directors they work for, the crewmen, as rock stars. These days, literally anyone can do special effects with the basis of applications and the most rudimentary of resources, like that guy who fixed the shoddy digital de-aging in The Irishman with consumer-grade equipment. So while everything pre-digital revolution now has this noticeable unreality that doesn't jibe with our modern mindsets, the charm these early effects exude is remarkable. Case in point, 1940s The Thief of Baghdad. Come with us on a ship of adventure to meet The Thief of Baghdad in that ancient land of mystery, romance, thrills, and excitement. Baghdad, city of magic. Baghdad, where breathtaking miracles leap before your eyes. Shot in vibrant technicolor on massive sets and incorporating every photographic trick in the book, The Thief of Baghdad is a visual marvel. And, perhaps paradoxically, it's also 30% better than the live-action remake of Aladdin, despite containing 40% more brownface, something that I could also lob in the direction of producer Alexander Korda's adaptation of The Jungle Book. If you can stomach its ickier tendencies, 1940s special effects spectacles rarely get more interesting. The Thief of Baghdad is currently streaming on the Criterion Channel and HBO Max, but you should be like me and help keep physical media alive by picking up the DVD. And Criterion, if you're listening, can you hurry up with producing 4K discs and relaunch this title in the format? Thank you. Sincerely, Ryan. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as the Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. 
This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter, at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram, at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Isabel T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, T-Flex, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Michael H, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, Christopher J, Tracy R, and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.